now Ambassador Lobrovo. Well, I'm going to bring hope, okay? <laughs> uh, I have to start out being a professor at NDU by saying I do not speak on behalf of the Department of Defense, the United States government, or even my former agency, the Department of State, and I find that very liberating. Um, <laughs> John and I were talking before I came up here, and uh, I have to echo something that he said to me, which is, I made my first visit to Yemen in 1976 when I was a young officer in the embassy in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, along with Chuck Cecil. Um, and uh, I hitched a ride with a wild and crazy ambassador by the name of Tom Pickering, who was an ambassador in Jordan. And he said, I'm going to drive the Ta'ism back down the center and then come back up the coast. I went with him, and I lived to tell about it. But the one thing I want to echo that John says is once you go to Yemen, the people and the country always stay in your heart. It's just absolutely true. And I, when I went back there recently, again, I felt that same feeling over and over again. I am a, I made my career in the Foreign Service as a policy manager. Give me a policy, and I'll make it work. So today I'm going to be very descriptive and prescriptive and detailed, unlike as I do as a professor where I'm talking to people whose English is their second language. I'm going to speak very fast because I have a lot to say. And I apologize if I don't look at you because I have to look at the notes. Yesterday Iraq, today Afghanistan, tomorrow Yemen. That's what I hear from the analysts all the time. Unfortunately, yesterday's Iraq is still going to be with us today and tomorrow. Today's Afghanistan is going to be with us tomorrow. So if tomorrow is Yemen, we've got some serious policy choices to make. And we're going to have to be, in my view, this cannot be our struggle. This requires nothing short of major engagement. And we should start now, because the old adage is true on this, as it has been for much of my own personal life. It's pay me now or pay me later. And the cost, as you've heard from Greg in particular, I think are going to be extremely high in the future. We need to start now. So I'm going to get right into details. I think the key event that we need to look for is the United States, no doubt, will be uh, welcoming the President of the United States, will be welcoming President Ali Abdullah Saleh to Washington in the not-too-distant future. And I believe that we should have all elements of engagement in place by the time of that visit. It's a lot of work to do. That's the target. The souk, the marketplace, should not open then. It should be closed by then. We must be in a position where we can announce that we are full partners with Young. We must recognize, of course, that Ali Abdullah Salahs are not in sync with ours, but he does see our support as essential. We need, before his visit, a solid set of mutual commitments that serve his and our interests. That's not easy. And again, I'm doing a flyby here, so I'm not getting into a lot of details. Let's be clear. Counterterrorism CT is our overriding concern. <coughs> but draining the swamp is not enough. I was there. I got the T-shirt from 2001 to 2004 as PDAS. Um, the task now is not draining the swamp of terrorists. The task now is to drain the swamp. That's what needs to be done. And we have to address all elements to keep that swamp drained and ensure it never fills up again. I believe we need a clear statement by the president when, the, uh, when Ali Abdullah says about our partnership. And actually, there's one. It exists. I came across this remarkable statement by Paul Jones, who is the deputy special representative 
for Afghanistan and Pakistan just this past Monday at the, at the American Enterprise Institute. Get a copy of it. Get it from state.gov. Then get to the paragraph that says, building a new partnership with Pakistan. It's absolutely freaky. Substitute Yemen, you got your statement. I'm not going to go through it. It's beautiful. Read it. Now, CT is our overriding concern, but engagement with the Yemeni people is vital. It was Everard Murrow, who many of you are actually here, are old enough to remember, like me, who said that uh, getting our story out over 10,000 miles is easy. It's the last three feet that count. Getting face to face. It's a very difficult thing to do. And let me read to you a recent statement by Ambassador Smith, which I thought was very bold on his part, Ambassador Smith in Saudi Arabia. There are unique challenges that we, as in our diplomatic presence, face in Saudi Arabia. It is the byproduct of when you build walls, because we've been building walls since 9-11, physical walls. Saudi Arabia has been an unaccompanied post for five years, so you come on one-year rotations, it takes you four months to learn your job, you do it in six months, and you get the hell out. You continue to build walls and fences, you're there to represent the American people, the people of Saudi Arabia, and you're finding yourself migrating to only three cities and to single buildings, and that's it. He's right. I thought that was bold of him to say that. It's worse in Saddam. Been there, seen it. Now, for those of you who are from the Hill, here's your challenge. And this is what I ask you to do as a bipartisan effort. We need to have a fast track for Yemenis. And I want you to call this a bipartisan bill. McConnell-Feinstein would be wonderful if you could do it. Uh, I actually had part of a McConnell-Feinstein bill once. Uh, and I would call it the last three feet. What we need to do is to speed up the process of entry, exit visas, and Leahy amendments. I can tell you from our NISA programs and from so many other people I talk to, <coughs> Yemenis can't come because they can't get the visas in time. Some programs end and the visas come in a month later. This is a backlog problem. That's all. I'm not asking any corners to be cut. We need to throw more, a few more people. $10 million is what we need and the whole backlog of visas, not just for Yemen, but for key countries like Afghanistan and Pakistan, would be over. And we could bring these people here to do that last three feet. If we can't do it, or it's difficult to do there, bring them here. Secondly, I call for the State Department to announce a Yemen 2000 initiative. And I'll get into more details. When I say Yemen 2000, I think we ought to bring 2,000 Yemenis here every year. This is going to require a lot of English language training here, but uh, at the same time, we need to bring middle management people who can work on the very issues that Chris and Greg talked about. We need to do that. It's vital. Engagement with the Saudis. We cannot win without their support and their cooperation, in my view, but they won't lead and they won't be our partner. So what we need to have is, and I will substitute a word that begins with the letter S, we need to have a noble conversation with them that is continuous and frank about keeping the swamp drained and all that that entails, because they're going to be the victims. There's no question about that. And we need to partner. Engagement with the international community. It's a knee-jerk reaction to go to the World Bank. We've done this over and over again. This is the wrong way to approach it, in my view. Uh, we've had pledging conferences in the past that have pledged billions of dollars for Yemen, and it's never been delivered. Only a small percentage. What I would call for is the creation of a fund of funds. I've seen this work before. A fund of funds is where you have a lead agency, a lead one, and then you have others come together and they work together. 
not under the World Bank lead. In this case, a good friend of mine by the name of Abdel Latif Mohammed, who is the uh, leader of the Arab Fund, which is an extraordinary organization in terms of efficiency. If there's a way to do it in Yemen, he will do it. And the utter irony when you think about it, having a Kuwaiti to do this, but I won't get into that. But Fund of Funds is the way to go. So how do we mobilize our agencies to do this? We have a wonderful team already in place on counterterrorism. No surprise there. Uh, John Brennan and people who worked with him and for him at the NSC. Uh, others there. General Petraeus. Good guys. Military issues. A lot of attention. Just one small point on military issues. And this, I, again, I can speak freely. Thank God. I do believe that this is a Horn of Africa problem. And I know that there were horrendous issues and bloodletting within the administration, between the militaries, and on the Hill in terms of creating this baby called AFRICOM. But the Joint Task Force headquarters, uh, their office, uh, their leadership, Horn of Africa, in my opinion, for strategic as well as for tactical reasons, should be chopped to CENTCOM. This is a Horn of Africa problem, and it needs to be addressed in that context with all the resources that CENTCOM and best practices that they know can deliver. Next. Secretary Clinton does not need, please, no new special envoys. We don't need that. Clinton has a very, very strong team of state, at State Department, of undersecretaries uh, that she should call on to lead on all of these other issues that have been described here today. You're not going to drain the swamp until those are addressed. I'm only going to mention a few or I'll go on for far too long. But let me say that uh, Yemen 2000 that I spoke about, that is a perfect project for the Undersecretary for Public Affairs to be the lead on, to work with uh, some of our local universities, even right here in Washington, with Georgetown, GW, and others, to put these together, working with excellent agencies, uh, think tanks like uh, USIP and CSIS. Um, this, is, this is the way to go, and we should launch this now. This is a long-term part, part of our uh, uh, partnership. The Undersecretary for Economic Affairs, if you go back to the opening statement on policy that Secretary Clinton made when she first became Secretary of State, she said, we are going to take, retake the lead, as we had traditionally, on economic affairs. This is a perfect task for the Undersecretary of Economic Affairs to be working on the fund of funds. And I know he can draw in serious people uh, to help with him with uh, this uh, this leadership and working with, uh, particularly with the GCC states. Uh, people like former President Clinton, guess what? He knows the pain of working with a failed state in Somalia. George H.W. Bush knows and is highly respected by those in the Gulf. And bring back people like Brian Atwood. I think this fund of funds is absolutely vital to bring together all the resources to uh, address all those economic problems. Let me end by saying... Uh, Reminding you again, pay me now or pay me later. I think this is going to be a small price to pay. And with a task force at state to support all this under NEA, uh, that's about all you need. We don't need boots and pinstripes on the ground. No, this is, uh, this is not a high price to pay, but we need to get to work now. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador We now have as a commentator uh, Dr. Mustafa Alani, who I've known for some years, and a number of you perhaps know his writings as well. He is just back from Yemen two days ago, Dr. Alani. 
Good afternoon. Uh, I, I actually, as uh, my colleague said, I just came back from Yemen two days ago. The news is not that, that bad. And uh, as Mark Twain said, the, the rumor about my death is premature. So Yemen is not uh, a failing state. Yemen is not a failed state. Yemen state is, would, would, uh, like any other state, state with a problem. So the exaggeration is not going to serve any, any purpose here, and not in our interest. The mother of all problems in Yemen is the economic problem. The problem of uh, lack of resources and mismanagement of resources. And this problem basically feeds on other problems. So the question here is, is like Egypt, Egypt always faces a major problem, economic problem, Yemen, Iran, uh, Yemen is not a unique state here, uh, so facing a problem, yes. Uh, we have about 24 million people living in Yemen with very limited resources. And if you put all the GCC together, uh, minus the foreigner, Yemen have more population than the whole GCC. So we have to understand uh, the problem uh, uh, facing the, the, the government uh, the, in Yemen. Yemen facing three major challenges in terms of security. The first question is the Al-Houthi. And here I have to really remind you that in, in the region we have different priority from your priority. You might see Al-Qaeda as, as you know, the, the nightmare sitting next to the outside the door. In Yemen we don't see Al-Qaeda as a major threat, neither to the regime nor to the state security. Al-Qaeda in Yemen is manageable threat. The whole, the, the whole organization now have less than 50 people active. We have sympathizer, we have supporter. And I, I, I challenge anyone who tell me that Al-Qaeda done a good job in Yemen recently. If we're talking about the attack on the oil installation, it wasn't a successful attack. If we're talking about attack on the US embassy, it wasn't a successful attack. If we're talking about the attack on the tourists, well, tourists, I can't kill tourists anywhere. Tourists in the show, in the market, tourists walking outside the hotel, this is not an operation. So the question of, of Al-Qaeda is very effective, very active in Yemen, is a myth. And I can tell you about the 23 people who escaped in February 2006. The other part of the story, 20 of them either killed or captured. Out of the 23, only three left is not outside the, the, from the group which escaped. I'm not saying Al-Qaeda is not a problem. Al-Qaeda in Yemen is a regional organization. Since Al-Qaeda now emerged between Al-Qaeda, Saudi Arabia, and Al-Qaeda Yemen, it's a regional organization responsible for operation in Yemen, Saudi Arabia, and the whole GCC, at least theoretically. And you can see many operations basically organized by Al-Qaeda, Arabian Peninsula, is directed against Saudi Arabia. So the responsibility of fighting Al-Qaeda is not only Yemeni's responsibility. It's a regional responsibility. It's an international responsibility. So this is the question of Al-Qaeda in priority in Saddam. Al-Qaeda comes in the bottom of my, of my priority compared to other two major challenges, which is the Houthi revolt and the situation in the south. 
I don't think we have a major problem here. Again, it is a regional problem. The involvement of Saudi Arabia in the fighting basically developed the whole situation to a regional problem. And we assume the Iranian support to al Houthi. Again, make this problem is a regional problem. I was in Doha when, uh, in 2007 when the negotiation between the um, Yemenese government and uh, al Houthi uh, representative was in Doha. Basically, we tried to see what al Houthi wants. There was no demand. There's no specific demand. I mean, if you look at from 2004, the whole problem starts with the Houthi slogan, death to America, death to Israel, which is he borrowed from the Iranian revolution and the Hezbollah. And he, the, when the security tried to arrest him, and there is the people who shout him, this is the mosque, this is where the whole problem developed. So the question of, of, of uh, al Houthi, what al Houthi wants, I can't tell you what al Houthi wants, what we discovered from the negotiation. He wants Basically, the government will stop interfering in his affairs. Basically, what he wants, uh, safe haven. There's no authority, there's no government. He can do what he wants. He wants uh, similar to what Hezbollah was in the south of Lebanon. That there is no authority of government and nobody interferes. And you can understand, if you allow this, what we're going to end up with. We're going to end up with a mini-state in the north of Yemen on the, on the border of Saudi Arabia. We, in my department, we monitor the Houthi website, we monitor the Houthi publication every day. And we can see, I mean, the Smith, why Al Houthi basically, uh, what the Al Houthi wants. What Al Houthi wants is not acceptable to the United States. I would be very surprised if the United States accept that a group of our militia, uh, we assume they have a link with Iran going to establish a, a, a mini-state in the north of Yemen, where the government have no authority and they can do what they want. <coughs> the question of the south, again, this is a huge exaggeration. I was in the south. In the south, we have two different groups. We have the criminal activities, stealing cars, attacking banks, and this, taking advantage of the government focus on the Houthi. Um, you have to understand the Yemeni's government have limited resources, whether intelligence-wise, security-wise, and military-wise. And you cannot fight on all fronts equally. It is a major problem. So the question of the South, we have five groups inside the South, South of Yemen. These groups have different leaders operating in different parts of Yemen, of Bala um, and the other part, Zanzibar. And each leader has different demands. The only one in uniting them that, that, that they thought that to put, put pressurize on, on uh, to pressurize the Yemenese government and to pressure, put pressure on the regional stability to ask for separation. So this group is not really active. And the original demand of this group was not political. It is development, the question of development, question of jobs, question of, of, of giving more money for the retired people. So in, 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 in Sanai priority, Definitely Al Houthi is the, the, the first priority. For very simple reason. Bani Sheikh is only 20 kilometers from Sana'a, and we have Al Houthi try to attack, uh, to conduct operation in Bani Sheikh. So for me as a regime, for me as a state, Al Houthi is a priority. Whether the United States agree with that or not, this is something problem for the United States. But the reality, 
This is what is threatening the regime. This is what is threatening the, the whole instability in the region. The second priority definitely is the, the question of, of the South. If the South is developed, so far we have a, a fragmented movement. There is no outside support to, this, to the idea of separation. Uh, but I am not sure in the future if this movement is uh, able to, to, to survive. We have no outside support. And thirdly, Al-Qaeda. So I just want to say that uh, I, I will stop here and, and, uh, uh, and uh, I will be happy to answer any question. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much, Dr. Alani. Now the floor is open for questions by way of submission of the questions in writing on your three by five cards. And I already have some. And I will read them and ask for the members of the panel, G, that you just look at me or give me the uh, finger, and I'll call on you. <laughs> what is the real danger that conflict could break out between Yemen and Saudi Arabia over and beyond the limited border skirmishes thus far. How can Yemen and Saudi Arabia develop a working relationship that is more mutually beneficial to both, both countries than is the situation now? And focus your answer, if you could, on key issues like labor mobility, religious extremism or threat to Saudi Arabian stability, displaced persons, arms sales, and partner piracy. Can you take it? The question of, of Saudi's involvement. The Saudis have a policy not to interfere, especially in the question of the police. This is not a new. The Saudis discovered that non-intervention policy in Iraq was very successful. On their assessment, whether we agree with it or not, doesn't matter again. They believe that the same policy could apply to the question of Africa. And I visited the, uh, the border, Saudi border, Saudi border with Yemen in 2006. I noticed that Houthi crossing the border free. And the uh, Yemen, the Saudi uh, security services, and the Saudis military and border guard is not challenging them. Those people are crossing the border without their own, buying things, food, and coming back to Yemen. So the Saudi done everything possible to avoid involvement in this conflict. Because they understand, since 1962, they have a good lesson. Don't put your hand in, in Yemen, because Yemen is too complicated, and possibly you can get in, but you, can, you cannot get out. So, until November, last November, we have uh, the Houthis firing on the border guard, Saudi's border guard, and killing one and injuring three. The Saudi reach a point that they cannot really uh, maintain their policy of non-intervention, and they cannot leave this, this sort of, of, of provocation without answer. So this is the whole issue when the Saudis open fire on the Houthi. And they, they believe that the Houthi uh, done this uh, on purpose because he believed, uh, the Houthi leadership believed that uh, Saudi's intervention will open the door for other intervention. 
Because once it's become a regional problem, the Iranians can't put their hand easily without a problem. So this is the, one of the reasons why Putin went that far and think that the Saudis' involvement is, is useful. What the Saudis doing? The Saudis paying almost two, two billion dollars, two billion riyal every year to Yemen. But Yemen is a, is a, a, a big country. Uh, they need more. And the question of, of what the Saudis can do, the question is what the GCC can do, not only Saudis. Thank you, Dr. Alan. Ambassador Boudin would like to comment on that. Thank you. To answer. Yeah, I'm okay. All right. Um, the first question, you know, do I see a um, prospect for a major uh, conflict between Yemen and Saudi Arabia in the future? And I, no, I don't. Um, you know, border skirmishes, border problems, the Saudis involving themselves in the Houthis. Uh, well, we have evidence of that already. Um, but a major war, no. Um, I do take a little exception to um, my colleague's statement that the Saudis have had a policy of non-interference in Yemen since 1962. <laughs> um, and I think a few others may also have a slightly different read. Uh, Saudis have been have been very much involved in Yemen, um, and a part of my remarks I didn't get to is that Yemen was very much buffeted from the Al Houthi. Okay, then I misunderstood you, um, because certainly the Saudis have been very much involved in trying to shape uh, the policy and, and the situation first in North Yemen and then in United Yemen, all the way up to at least uh, the 1994 civil war. Uh, where the United States did make it very clear to the Saudis that this uh, support for the secessionist movement was not in Yemen's interest, in Saudi Arabia's interest, or in our interest, and we would uh, highly recommend that they cease the support. Um, there was a major change in the relationship with the demarcation of the border in, um, in the summer of 2000, and I think the relationship has become more normal since then, um, but Saudi tendencies to try to manipulate Yemen, I think, has been a chronic problem. If there is $2 billion in assistance, that's good. The problem is the unofficial money that comes to, to tribes and things. And I, the view was always that the Saudis wanted Yemen to be uh, stable enough not to be a direct threat and not so stable uh, that it could somehow pose a different kind of, of, of military threat. And that's a very delicate line to try to find, and I think they've, they've misplayed it a couple of times. To deal on a more normal diplomatic level, I think, would, would uh, benefit both of those states greatly. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, to follow up because I, I had a slightly different reading as well. I think, first, when we're talking about the Houthis, I think to, to claim that the, that the problem started in, in June of 2004 when the government attempted to arrest, uh, arrest Hussein Badr al-Din al-Houthi, it might be a bit of a mistake. I think it goes back much further than that, back into the 60s and then back after post-unification and dealing with Hezbollah Haqqani, and it's a very complicated issue. 
And I think it, it would be also a bit of a mistake to claim that Saudi only got involved in, in November. Even before the conflict, there were books back and forth between Bin Baz in Saudi Arabia and Badr al-Din al-Houthi in the north um, in 2008. Saudi pressured um, Hussein al-Ahmar to try to raise a tribal militia to fight the Houthis. So certainly, uh, at least from my take, which, which differs from Dr. Alani's, um, Saudi Arabia has been quite involved, even if it wasn't sort of the active military conflict that we're seeing now. I think uh, Dr. Alani was correct, though, to point out that the, um, the longevity of the involvement has been extensive, and Ambassador Bodine as well. One person made the analogy that, well, Saudi Arabia for a period was picking up in terms of development costs, schools, hospitals, clinics, roads, mosques, in Yemen, uh, was more than most of the rest of the international community combined. And there were a number of other countries involved, the U.S., the, the Dutch, uh, the Germans, the British, etc. Et, et this one goes to the development side of it, and perhaps you, Chris, or Ambassador Morocco, uh, would like to respond. That has to do with the wars. Uh, many of the speakers identified the depletion of water as a major threat. What can, should the U.S. and the international community do to help the Yemeni government deal with this problem? And then there's a related one. Is there any potential to boost the Yemeni economy by starting an industry of desalination plants to create jobs and alleviate the water price, uh, crisis? Great question. Great question. Can you hear me? No. 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 Is that better? No. Just speak loud. I'll just speak loud. Well, I think that's okay. I think I think water is is a, a critical critical issue. And two things that, that could be done straight away is addressing the issue of subsidies. The fact that the Yemeni economy subsidizes diesel to the extent that it does goes to the, the, the furtherance of uncontrolled uh, extraction of underground water. And first and foremost, there needs to be a very painful discussion with the Yemeni government about the use of subsidies. Um, that's that's kind of one issue. The second issue, I think, you know, would be to address the issue of God. And the fact that so much water goes to the, to the cultivation of God in the long run is incredibly uh, destructive for the environment, for Yemen, uh, and for its scarce resources. So doing things like allowing Yemen to import got from other places, stopping the government from purchasing got for official functions, all these things would go towards um, a better use of, of Yemen's scarce water resources. On desalinization, it would be great if this would work in Yemen, but the cost of fuel feedstock are prohibitive in Yemen. Other places in the Gulf, it works very well. Moreover, you would have to pipe water over 7,000 feet to get to the highland urban areas where it matters, and that's just not, not possible. Uh, let me add that from uh, my, my own studies, which are nothing like what they have done, the answers are already there, quite frankly, on a lot of water that's actually carrying it out. Many Yemeni scientists themselves uh, have come up with the, the solutions. Uh, the political will to do it and the economic resources to do it is a completely separate matter. And this is where I would argue that this, uh, the funded funds, and particularly some of the uh, local regional organizations like the Arab Fund, the Islamic Development Bank, and others, can play a very decisive role. Now, I would like to uh, offer a very provocative view on the issue of desalinated water, which I believe very strongly is the way to go. 
And the way to do that, in my view, is again, there's a lot of expertise in the regions. And I believe the funding could be obtained from uh, the Gulf countries to do this. But you're not going to take it up 90,000 feet. If you're not going to take it up 90,000 feet, then you bring the people down. And that's what I would argue is the way to go is to develop new cities, new cities along the coastal areas. I think from a matter of security, it's good. I think from a matter of decentralization, it's good. You bring the people down, you bring them jobs, you have industrialized industrial zones, um, free ports, however you want to do it. And this is what China did. My God, if you could do it in a place of a billion and a half people, you can do it in Yemen. Uh, this is the way to go. Move the people. Don't move the... Uh, Yemenis have a history of migration for thousands of years. I'm probably descended from a Yemeni ever since I'm a This could be done. Yemenis move. Do it. This next one comes back to the uh, USS Cole, Guantanamo, uh, the half of the US prisoners who remain the detainees there are Yemeni. How does Guantanamo fit into the U.S.-Yemeni discussions on aid? And how likely is it that the U.S. and Yemen will repatriate the Guantanamo detainees? Stated a little differently here, what is the political importance in Yemen of its prisoners being held in Guantanamo? And what reaction should one expect if many or any of them were to be indefinitely detained by the United States? And do any of you know wish to comment on reports regarding recent Yemenis suicides at Guantanamo? <laughs> I'm putting ambassador building on the spot here. Yeah, thank you so much, John. Um, I want to thank you again for this invitation. Um, uh, I think, first of all, I think we have to make a distinction between most of the Yemenis who are in Guantanamo and, and the attack on the coal. Uh, they're not the same people. Um, now, Mr. Mr. Nishiri, uh, who was the mastermind um, of the attack, is in custody and, and has been the subject of the decision by the Attorney General to be tried under a military tribunal. Um, and we're not going to get in, into that issue here. but. Um, on the key players uh, in U.S. custody, uh, directly directly related to the attack on the ship, I think that the, that decision has been made, and I think it's probably the right one. Um, I will say that I'm a, a little concerned that there are reports that Mr. Nishiri uh, uh, benefited from our experiments in waterboarding, and I hope this doesn't in any way jeopardize our case, but I will, I will defer to the Attorney General that they would not be bringing it. There's the other major group of Yemenis at Guantanamo have nothing to do with that attack. And there's a lot of debate that uh, their degree of involvement, uh, either as, as, um, as combatants um, or as terrorists, is that we do not have the evidence to support it. And the debate that we... That we, the United States, have been having with Yemen is exactly how to manage the repatriation. I do think that some of the ideas of having them go through a Saudi repatriation process um, really does not make a great deal of sense to me. Uh, to the extent the Saudi repatriation program works, it works because it's Saudis in the Saudi context. It includes things such as a job um, and the funding to get married, neither of one of which the Saudis are about to offer to the Yemeni. So um, 
When I was in Yemen in January, uh, this issue of non-repatriation of Yemenis against whom we do not have sufficient evidence to take them to court uh, and would fall into the categories such as those who have been repatriated to other countries is a political problem and it is a source of, of, of tension, I think, between both us and Yemen and between the uh, elements of the Yemeni public who uh, are concerned that their government has not been able to affect the return of um, those lower, lower level Yemenis against whom we do not have evidence. Uh, yeah, I'll just say a couple of, uh, of things. If you look at, say, the Saudis who were in Guantanamo and then went through the Saudi rehabilitation program versus the Yemenis that are, that are in there, there's not a whole lot of difference on what's known. I agree very strongly with Ambassador Bodine that there's a whole lot of these people that were just sort of caught up in this dragnet after September 11th and now sort of eight years down the road when we're looking at solving the problem, you know, differentiating who's innocent and who's guilty is an incredibly difficult uh, task. That seems to have overmatched the U.S. But the, the real difference, it seems to me, is that the U.S. has a degree of trust in the Saudi Arabian government that it just doesn't have in the, in the Yemeni government. And so in many cases, these Yemenis seem to be held there are almost kind of prisoners of their own citizenship. Now, certainly there are some that the U.S. would have strong suspicions that were involved. Qasem al-Rami has a younger brother, Kuwaz al-Rabi, who was involved in planning the dual suicide attack in, in 2006, has a brother there. Um, Mansour al-Bayhani, who was killed by the U.S. in Somalia, has a couple of brothers there, and so on and so forth. But the vast majority of Yemenis that the U.S. just doesn't have any evidence against continue to be held because the U.S. has little confidence in, in Yemen's ability to rehabilitate them or to um, keep them in custody. Um, just one final note, um, the Yemenis that have been repatriated to, to Yemen, none of them have returned to, to terrorism, unlike, say, Saudi Arabia, where a number of them have went on to, uh, to rejoin al-Qaeda. Okay. This next one comes back to the economic and adds to it the educational aspect, and perhaps Ambassador Roroko may wish to comment on this for the 2,000 that would come here. Uh, what would you have them do? in these institutions that you make reference to. Not much was said about the feared, or the failed, excuse me, education system in Yemen. Please elaborate on this issue and how can the U.S. assist in its reform? And related, are Yemeni Americans participating or being involved in any negotiations or communicating with Yemeni officials? I know that there are at least a dozen here in this room uh, who are involved in one way or the other. Would you like to press that? I'll, I'll yeah. take the first part. That's actually three questions. But uh, what I perceive for the Yemen 2000 is, in fact, we're not, there may be some younger people who could be involved, but uh, I would leave that up to universities. But this would be an overall coordinated goal, 2000. And I would think the prime target audience we're looking at are those who are in a position in their careers of being a bit younger but middle manager types people that we want to be able to help addressing those economic issues that have been described so well here. Uh, we at the NISA Center, for example, uh, have quite a few alumni. In fact, you want to know about our alumni, go to the Yemeni Embassy. Six of the Yemeni Embassy here are alumni of our NISA programs. And we, we work very closely with, uh, particularly in this case, with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of uh, Defense people. Uh, and we get into a whole variety of strategic issues. Uh, but what I see is other think tanks and universities designing these programs. 
Now, if we can, in fact, bring some younger people, that would be better. I don't know exactly how that's done, but I'm sure universities can work on it. But the idea is to build a cadre of people who can, in the longer term, work with us, work with friends in the region, and have a technical competence in particular and the English language ability to do this. When I was a younger officer, I mean, we saw this all the time. Uh, USII did this brilliantly and uh, in coordinating this. We've lost this. We won the war, the end of history. So I think it's time that we bring this all back again, and Yemen's a great place to start. Ambassador DeBodi has a comment on this. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to comment on this. Um, we have had a very long um, educational exchange program with Yemen going back to what uh, known as the famous 40, uh, 40 young men uh, from the imammate period of Yemen who went to the States and uh, went back to Yemen and, actually and are the core of, of the modern state uh, to the extent that there has been success in, in Yemen politically and economically. A lot of it can be traced back to those first 40. Um, when I first got to Yemen uh, as ambassador, we had no educational exchange program at all, and I turned a, an intern loose once to interview everybody in the government, in education, in the media, in the NGO world, who had a US education, all of them based on scholarships. And when we finished looking it over, it was everybody who was moving the country forward. Um, Abu Karim al-Iriani is probably the most famous, uh, but he is certainly not the only one. And one of our goals was to get the Fulbright Exchange Program started again. And by 2001, we had it up to 35 Yemenis. One of the things that was particular, the two things that were very notable about the Yemenis that came back to the US for undergraduate and graduate work um, is that, first of all, that they did very well. They got into very good schools. Um, the return rate was extraordinarily high. I think in one year out of 120 uh, Yemenis who came here for education, 108 went back. And they were all in the government, as I said, in the media. They were moving Yemen forward. Um, at one point, I had the Undersecretary for Global Affairs come to, the, to Yemen, and I said, I'm going, to take, I'm going to take you out and show you all of USAID's most important projects. And I took him into the backyard at a great big reception and introduced him to all the Yemenis we had educated. Um, this is a program that we have been doing. The school system in Yemen is very bad, yet we have been able to recruit, educate, and they have returned some of the most remarkable people I've ever met. Great. Um, just one quick quick note on to what Ambassador Bodine said. For those interested in this question, I would strongly recommend reading a, a plan that Jalal Yaqub, uh, the Deputy uh, Minister of Finance, has put forward, and a key part of this plan is bringing back the very talented Yemeni expatriate population back to, to the country. So I think it's a, it's a fascinating document and a very forward and very optimistic one. Dr. Alani, could you revisit the aspect about the GCC countries and others of means and their potential and probable role in addressing this in any influential way? Uh, that was the London Conference of Donors uh, several years ago that pledged uh, around $4.5 billion to Yemen. But you were right in saying very little of it has gotten in. And when some of us have asked the donors uh, what has held it up, uh, their answers are never the same from one to the next. Uh, many would say, well, you Americans have educated us about transparency and, 
anti-corruption drives, etc. So we're trying to do that ourselves, and we need to see a feasibility project, and we need to send our own people from our Ministry of Finance to check it out and make sure it's going for institution building or projects, not, not, not to uh, leaders or, or government officials as such. Um, so could you come back to that? <laughs> I know it's not just Saudi Arabia that has contributed uh, significantly and uh, longer than anyone else, but Kuwait did too. Once. The whole uh, University of Kuwait was uh, paid for. Uh, the University of Sanat was paid for by Kuwait in its construction and much of its staff as well. Japanese contributed too, and the UAE has been quite uh, generous, and the others have not been non-generous. 